Good morning. As I was seeking the Lord about what to talk about, I, I was seeking him for a while about what to talk about. <laughs> and finally, what came to me was wait on the Lord, was um, the message that he had for me. And um, as I wrestled with that, I was just like, God, wait on you, wait on you. I do a lot of waiting on you. So this is going to be a, a tough one for me, Lord, because I'm still in seasons of waiting. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 1 through 5 to start. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I often wrestle with the reality of waiting on the Lord. I don't like to wait. And my suspicion is that most of you don't like to wait either. In fact, we're programmed not to like to wait by our instant ready, have-it-your-way culture. I find it difficult to wait for most things, in fact. The guy in front of me driving the speed limit, instead of five over like I like to, right? Yeah. Or the person in the checkout line with two items and 20 coupons. Or the person in the 10 item or less line with 100 items. All things that show my inability to wait. Um, as, as the Lord dropped this on my heart, it seemed to be that I just couldn't shake this idea of waiting on the Lord. So this morning we're going to journey through the life of Abraham and glean some truths from Abraham's life about waiting on God. And I think we couldn't find a better model for someone who waited. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning, God. I am a weak, feeble man, and I thank you, Jesus, that you would use me to speak your words. Lord, let my words be true to you and to Scripture, Father. Let me speak your truths. Father, I pray that you would move in this place on the hearts of every person here who may be in their own season of waiting, God. And Lord, the truths that you have shown me, I pray that they would transfer into your people today, Jesus. Amen. Waiting on the Lord requires that we trust him no matter where it takes us, what it looks like, or how long it takes. I'm going to say that again. Waiting on the Lord requires us trusting him no matter where it takes us, what it looks like, or how long it takes. Waiting on the Lord requires trusting him no matter where it takes you. Look at Genesis 12:1 with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor you. Dishonor you I will curse, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So as I read that, the first thing that I noticed here is that Abraham did what I'm sure I probably wouldn't do and what many of you probably wouldn't do. Abraham immediately dropped all of his plans and shows that he trusts God by his actions. If I were in Abraham's shoes, I would probably have a million questions before I started to move. Like, God, how long is it going to take? When am I going to get there? 
Is it going to be a hard trial? Is it going to be a hard road getting there, God? How many years will it take? I would have a bunch of questions before I actually got up and got my feet to moving. But Abraham did not have that response. Abraham's response was, I trust you, God, and I'm going to show you that I trust you by walking. I'm going to show you that I trust you by moving on the thing that you have said to me. Now, you think after receiving this promise and Abraham moving on faith and saying, okay, God, I believe you, I trust you, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this, you would think that things would get easy for Abraham after that point, right? You'd say, okay, he's being obedient to God, and God gave him this calling, and all this great stuff's going to happen in his life. But uh, it didn't get easier for Abraham. The first thing that happens as soon as he sets out is that a famine hits the land. And the famine caused him to have to go down to Egypt. When he goes down to Egypt, he has his wife Sarai with him. And Sarai is very beautiful, according to the scriptures. And so before they even left, and we find this out later, um, Abram had made a deal with her, with his wife, and saying, hey, look, when we go into these other places, you are very pretty, and they're going to want to kill me for you. So I need you to tell them that you're my sister. And I just thought that was kind of funny, because God, God uses some strange things, doesn't he? I was thinking about that, and I said, wow, he's going to use a lie. He's going to lie right here. But I'm not going to get into that. Um, but yeah, so he goes down there, and just as he says, Pharaoh sees Sarai, his people see her, and they go, oh, man, she's beautiful. So they grab her, bring her to his palace. And so Pharaoh's like, she's gorgeous. I'm going to take her for my wife. And Abram's like, this is my sister, not my wife. So he's like, cool, it's good. So she goes and all of a sudden plagues hit. All of a sudden plagues hit Pharaoh's house and all this bad stuff's happening. And he's looking. Now, he had more sense than many of us do because we don't really have good sense when it comes to cause and effect things a lot of times. At least I don't. Because something will happen. And instead of putting two and two together and saying, before Sarai, everything was great. After Sarah, <laughs> everything is not so great. Usually I have, I'll take a long time putting two and two together like that. My wife will tell you. But apparently uh, he was a little bit brighter than me. And so they get down there. The plague strike them. And God comes to Pharaoh and lets him know that, hey, the man who you took, that woman, is not a woman that you can have. And so Pharaoh's like, all right, you know what? I ain't playing with God. Because if God comes to you personally, you ain't going to play with him. I'm sure if he came to speak to you, in your dream, and it was just so vivid and clear, as I'm sure it was for him, that you'd be like, okay, God, I'm going to do whatever you say. So he gets, he gets a whole bunch of good stuff and gives it to Abraham, and it's like, get out of here, dude. Why would you bring this thing upon me? I didn't do anything to you. Why would you do me like this? And so he sends him away with all of his goods, and so now Abram's got more stuff. And so Abram's traveling, he goes, and then the next thing that happens in chapter 13 is Abram faces separation from his family. Now, this separation wasn't a separation caused by some beef or strife between them. It happened because the God had blessed them both immensely. So Abraham had all of these goods and possessions and cattle and herds, and Lot had all these goods and possessions and cattle and herds, and it was too tough for them to live together. So their herdsmen were fighting with each other about whose stuff is whose. I could see them down there like, man, that's my sheep. I know that's my sheep. My sheep had a pink spot on his neck. I know that's mine. You can see it. So they were having beef and he said, all right, all right. I don't want to have strife between me and you, Lot. So God's gave me all of this stuff anyway, right? Look around. Look east, west, look left, right. He said, hey, if you take the left, I'll take the right, Lot. If you take the right, I'll take the left. There's no reason for us to have trouble with all of this land around us. So they separate. Now, even though this separation wasn't caused by sin or something 
evil, it's still separation from somebody close to him, to his family, someone who started this journey with him when he left. And then after that, faces war in order to rescue Lot. Because little did Lot know, when he looked over there at where he should go, he looked and he was like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. It almost looks like the Garden of Eden. It's like water everywhere and fresh brooks. And he didn't know he was looking at Sodom. Right? So he went there. He ended up in Sodom. And war breaks out between kings in the land. It says five against the four kings. And so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the other cities, they went out to battle against Chattelomer, I believe his name was, a king that they were serving under who they decided to rebel against. And now there was that king along with the kings that he brought with him facing Sodom and the kings that they had with them. And so a big battle ensues and Lot gets captured in the midst of that battle. It says that as the Sodom and Gomorrah, as Sodom was fleeing, that they fell into Bitman pits, which are basically tar pits. And so they got trapped in the tar pits. You've ever seen quicksand, sinking sand? It would be very difficult to get out of. And so they kind of killed themselves in a sense. And so that allowed the other kings to take all of the goods and riches that they had. And then they left and they took Lot with them. So a guy that knew Abraham, who was an ally of Abraham, goes to Abraham. It's like, man, they took, they took your family, man. They took Lot. He's gone. The, the war, they, they got him. And so Abram's like, all right. He calls his, you ever seen the movie 300? He calls his 300. So it says Abraham grabbed his 318 men and they went out and they beat all of the kings that just got through beating all of them. And he takes all of their stuff and he takes Lot and he gets out of there. And so next we got some other stuff in the text that I'm going to skip over today because it's very deep and not important to what we're talking about. Where he talk, he meets the king of Salem and he talks about Melchizedek and all of that in that chapter too, but we won't go into that. So anyway, I just wanted to show you that after he had been given this promise, that it did not become this smooth road for him. It's not like God said, hey, this is what I have for you, and now as you journey, your path is going to be smooth. That's not what happened. You can see that he faced all kinds of tribulations on his way. And I don't know about you, but I'd really be questioning at this point if God really did tell me to pack up my stuff and move in chapter 12. After all, you probably believe like I once did, that every decision that's backed by God comes along with a feeling of peace, right? That's not necessarily true. Have you ever made the decision to leave a church? I can tell you from experience that's not usually accompanied with a feeling of peace. I've had to do that before. I remember my decision to leave a fellowship that was my family, and that's how we have to look at it. They were the first fellowship that I came to know at the start of my faith walk. So they had poured so much into me, and I had learned so much, and I had grown so much with these people. But I knew because of some inconsistencies with teaching and things of that nature that that is not where God ultimately wanted me to be. And so I had to move. But I can tell you this, that that was not an easy move. Even though I did everything I could in my power to reconcile with the church and its leaders and all of that, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I wrote them a letter. I, I talked, met with him. I mean, I did everything that I could do in my power to show that I love him and that I believe that this is what God wanted me to do. But I can tell you there was no peace necessarily in making that decision. It was a necessity, but I wasn't feeling peaceful about that. But it was the best decision for me. So the application here is trust God with the plan and the details. 
We waste a lot of time and energy trying to figure out God's next move, which is foolish because the Lord tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So stop it. You will never figure God out. You can't even figure out your spouse. I'm saying this to myself first. Roman, you will never figure out God's moves. So do as he told you to do, Roman, and leave the details in God's hands. The application here is Matthew 6, 33 through 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, we spend a lot of time worrying into things and seeking and peering into things that are God's things to worry and be concerned about. If he wanted you to know his plan, he'd show you his plan, right? We got we to gotta get out of God's business sometimes, and I have a hard time doing that. Is because I'll see a thing and I want to say in my mind, God, this is what it should look like. This is how it will look. And God usually does it totally different than anything that I ever expected. Everything that's ever happened in my life did not happen the way that I expected it. I can tell you that much. Waiting on the Lord requires trusting him no matter what it looks like. Look at Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, looked toward the heaven, And number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, directly preceding these verses, we have God making a covenant with Abraham. If you look with me at verse 18, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Once again, Abraham receives great promises from the Lord with no clue of how God would bring these things about. What I find curious is that Abraham had no problem believing the what part of what God told him, no matter how grand it seemed. But when it came down to waiting on God for the how, he failed every time. Look at Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. 
What it looked like to Abram and Sarai was that they needed to take control of the situation. I'm sure in their minds, the move that they made was the only move that they had. I can imagine Sarai and Abram both looking at one another thinking, I'm not getting any younger. So if this promise God gave us is going to happen, we got to make it happen. It's not our natural tendency to trust God when natural circumstances are unfavorable. It just isn't. You and I have a sin nature that consistently blinds us to spiritual realities. You find it easier to manipulate a situation toward a better outcome than you find it to wait on God for an answer. Why? Because waiting on God is often slow and costly, and you and I want it hot and ready, right? However, God is not Little Caesars. He's more like the little pizza place down the street that takes 45 minutes to make one little pizza, but it makes you want to slap your mama. He's more like that, right? He takes his time with things. Abraham and Sarai's inability to wait on the Lord ultimately brought about the birth of Ishmael by Hagar. Here's what the Bible says about Ishmael. In Genesis 16:12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael is believed to be the father of the Arab nations that we see today. And we know that they war against the Jews, the children of promise, through Isaac, even now to this day. Leaning on our own understanding when trying to discern the will of God can have grave consequences. God always fulfills his words, promises. However, we may have to carry some war wounds as a result of choices that we made based on what it looked like instead of what God said. God doesn't need you to help him help you. He needs you to realize that apart from him, you are helpless at your best and only option is to trust him. God wants you to know that you don't have the power apart from the Holy Spirit living in you and him working through you. We don't. I thought about leaving my company that I worked for at one time. Um, I was very frustrated. I felt overworked, underpaid, underappreciated. And it seemed like I was looking around and I'm seeing all of these people enjoying the benefits of working for the company, but not putting in the type of work that I was putting in for this company. And so as a result of that, I started to look around and I said, okay, Lord, maybe this is not where you want me since all of this is just going so difficult for me right now. And so I started to look. And so a, a guy that I know is like, hey, well, what about this? I could uh, get you a job here and doing this and that and that. And so I took that and I cuffed it in my pocket and I'm kind of thinking, okay, great. Now I have an option. Now the funny thing about having an option is that sometimes an option can change our attitude in our current situation. And as I thought about that, I was thinking about Abraham because he was keeping an option in his pocket all the time too. Like, oh, if this doesn't work out when we go into this land, remember, you're my sister, not my wife, right? He kept an option. And so while I had that option of possibly leaving my job, it made my attitude worse. Because now I wasn't depending on God to get me through that situation. I was depending on this other situation to carry me through if the current situation didn't work. That's a total different mindset. And so my attitude started to be more abrasive and more like, I don't need this. I can, I can go to this other job. I don't got to deal with this stuff. That ain't God. That's not God's attitude. God hadn't told me to move anyway. See, do we want to just ask God for things that we think he's going to answer or in all things. He tells us to ask him in all things, to pray to him in all things, to ask his advice 
and where to go and how to move in all things. At the time, I wasn't thinking about that in my job. I just knew that I was frustrated and I wanted to go. But that wouldn't have been God's timing. And as a matter of fact, the company that I was so ready to jump to does not even exist anymore today. And my company is thriving and growing. So if I would have made that move then based on how I felt and not what God was saying, then I'd still probably be recovering from that even to this day. But thank God for his grace and his mercy for giving me the insight to say, I'm going to stick this out because I started here and I'm going to continue here. So the application here is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Contrary to popular belief, you don't know better than God. In fact, if God gave you 5% of the things you asked for in your life and gave it to you the way you wanted it, you would probably have destroyed yourself and countless others in the process. Because a lot of times what we think is a blessing usually turns out to be a curse because we don't have the mind of God. Waiting on the Lord requires trusting him no matter how long it takes. Look with me at Genesis 17:15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarai shall be her, Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I don't know if I would have been so bold or comfortable in the presence of God to laugh when he's telling me something that's going to come to pass in my life. Um, But I can understand where Abraham's coming from. I can understand his thinking. Come on now. Do you know any 90-year-olds having children? Right. So let's cut Abraham some slack. However, I'm still perplexed at how you can, first of all, be talking with God as if it was no big deal. And then second, Abraham, you're already, you've already trusted God enough to get you where you are currently, but you still lack the faith to believe God could work supernaturally through he and Sarah's bodies to conceive a child. So we believe God for all of these great big things. But then when it came down to really the rubber meeting the road, he failed in that place of faith and trust and believing God for a supernatural thing. I don't feel so bad at times when I see how short-sighted many of the people God uses were. We're so much like them. For example, you can believe God to bless your food when you pray over it, but do you believe he'll feed you if you lose your job? You and I must consistently ask ourselves if we trust God in all things or only in the things we can understand with our natural minds. To Abraham's credit, He continued moving towards God's promises, even though he lacked belief in how it would be brought about. He started this journey when he was 75 years old. And at this point in the text, he's around 99 years old. So that's 24 years that have passed between the time the promise was given and to when we're almost to the point of it coming to pass or part of it. Previous to Abraham laughing at God's promise, God had given Abraham another task to fulfill, though. Abraham, with all his household, were to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant God had made with him that he would be the father of many nations. 
once again, we see Abraham moving on what God said, even at a time when he wasn't fully convinced as to how God would pull it off. Abraham wasn't the only person who thought God's promise was funny. Look with me at Genesis 18, verses 10 through 15. This is where God shows up with two angels at Abraham's doorstep. So they show up at Abraham's doorstep, and Abraham's like, he, he recognizes God immediately, because it says he does. And he runs up, he's like, hey, I'm pleased that you're coming here. Let me wash your feet. Let me provide you some food. Why don't you guys rest for a little bit? And so they do that. He prepares the food. They come, they hang out for a little bit, and then we get here. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about, and this is the Lord speaking, this. the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The Bible's funny. Because <laughs> even just making that statement, like we could have just went on from there, but it said, Nah, you laughed. Like something that we would do. I heard you. You laughed. But anyway, um, the Lord took his time in fulfilling the promise he had given to Abraham and Sarah. But like most things in life, it is the things that we wait for and hope for the longest that are the most meaningful to us when we receive it. Much like the ribs I smoked over Thanksgiving, God usually cooks our blessings low and slow to bring out true Christian flavor. So look with me at Genesis 21, 1 through 7. And this is where the promise is fulfilled. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So this message really actually strikes close to home to me because as I was Reading and studying this, I believe the Lord was definitely speaking to me about my own life and my own situations and my own seasons of waiting. And as I thought about 13 years ago, where I believe that God gave me the calling to preach, I believe that God called me to be a minister of the gospel. And 13 years ago, I had no idea what that would look like. And 13 years ago, when I called my wife from a jail cell and told her, that this is what I believe God wants me to do. She didn't laugh, but I'm sure deep down inside there was laughter in her heart because she's looking at this guy is going to do that. And I was saying to God, this guy is going to do that, God. And so as I've been on this journey of waiting on the Lord, it's one thing that consistently sticks out to me 
is that no matter how it pans out, no matter what it turns out to be, no matter what it looks like in the end, what God wants Roman to do is to do the work, regardless of how it pans out. He didn't want Abraham to worry about the details of how it was all going to work out. That wasn't his business. God just told Abraham to go, and he went. And that's the same thing that I believe God is saying to me and to you. Just do the work and let him be concerned with how it all fleshes itself out. And this is a lesson that was good for me. Thank you, Jesus. Um, Regardless of any of it, um, at that moment, I think I had gained some understanding of what the prophet Isaiah must have experienced when he says in Isaiah 6-5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I thought about that verse because that was the moment, in the moment that God was speaking to me about the calling on my life. That's how I felt. I felt like Isaiah, like, Lord, I'm a man with unclean lips. Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to give you. Lord. And he's like, right, you don't. And just like he chose Abraham out of nowhere, he chose me out of nowhere. He chose you, and he chose you, and he chose you. He doesn't choose us based on any abilities that we have in and of ourselves. He didn't look down and see Roman and say, he can sing. I could probably use him in the church. He didn't look down and see Roman and say, he, he can speak pretty well. I, I could use him as a minister. No, what he saw was a mess of a man, not even a man. And he turned me into a man to use me for his glory and for his purposes. I may not have seen a vision as the prophet did. However, I did receive a clear communication from the Lord concerning his plans for me. But much like Abraham and Sarah, God decided not to share with me the details of how it would come about. Over the years, there have been times where I have grown weary and doubted that God really called me as I believe. Yet I press on, not primarily with the hope that this promise will be fulfilled in the way I have often imagined, but instead I attempt to make continual efforts towards the promise, and God in his grace assures me in my weaknesses, as only he can, that I am moving in the right direction. The application here is 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ultimately, Second Peter 3, 9 should be the motivation behind what we do as we wait, as well as the posture of our hearts as we wait. Whatever you are waiting on God for should ultimately bring him glory, not just in its fulfillment in your life, but what it means in the big picture of advancing God's kingdom. If what you are waiting for only benefits you and has no lasting kingdom impact, you may want to check to make sure that what you desire is in line with God's word. Another thing about that verse, verse 9, it says, not wishing that any should perish. So even the promise that God gave Abraham in the very beginning was not just a promise to bless him. It was that the nations, the world would be blessed through him, that the gospel would end up going forth through that line, right? And ultimately, that's what it's about for us. As we wait on the Lord, are we doing the work that God has called us to do in our waiting? Are we preaching the gospel? Are we trying to reach the lost? 
Are we trying to communicate that Jesus died on the cross for the sins and that Jesus died and was buried and that he rose? Is that the constant cry and plea of our hearts as we wait? Don't waste the time that God has given you to wait. Use that time. Redeem that time. Use that time to be a servant, to be a worker for the Lord, to go out and bless others. Even when I think about when the angels came to Abraham, Abraham was a rich dude. Now, we know it was God and it was angels, but he went into a posture of servanthood immediately. How can I serve you? How can I help you? And God said, the greatest among you will be the greatest servants among you. And so that's what that's what I leave you with is that ultimately it all points to the gospel. I don't care what sermon I ever preach. It's going to eventually come to the gospel because that's what it's about. My waiting is not just about me. While I'm waiting, I'm going to make sure that I'm doing my best to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Because he's going to come back, and whether or not I stand in a pulpit with the title of pastor is not going to matter as much as who have I reached, who have I spoke to, Who have I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with? Because titles don't mean anything in God's eyes. He's not not concerned with Roman having a title. God is concerned with Roman reaching the lost. God is concerned with you reaching the lost. God is concerned with us having a passion and a desire for the people that are dying around us. Look out your window. Look out, go, go in your neighborhood. There's, I sit in the barbershop with my brother. He's here today. And that's such a beautiful thing that God has allowed that space. Because I sit in that barbershop and I look at people come from all over the place with all of these different ideologies and all of these different thoughts and all of these different things. And they're just so confused. And I'm thinking to myself, God, I have the answer. You gave it to me in the message of the gospel, in the message of your son, Jesus Christ. Why should I put anything or exalt anything in this life over that mission, because the commission is more important than anything that God might do personally in my life. I'm grateful for the gospel. I am grateful for salvation because he reached down in the depths of the dirt to reach me. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to go out there while we're waiting on these great blessings from God, while we're waiting for our church to grow, while we're waiting for all of these grand things to happen The only thing that's important is that we share Jesus with those who don't know him. And I leave you with that. I love you, church family. I love you, Highland Crest. God bless you.